We think about an intersection of two worlds. There's an intersection with the content, and this isn't related just to video, that's just what we do well, but you can tie it to words, you can tie it to images, to conversations, right? But it's that contextualization to you personally being paying attention to something that's organic or of a relationship in your life. And then there's the relationship of time in your life. Like, where are you at present time? You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. I don't know about you all, but I've been spending a lot of time vegging out, binging Netflix, binging Hulu, catching up on my favorite shows, even through just cable TV. I can't seem to get enough of content. And I know a lot of folks out there are doing the same thing as they're trying to shelter in place, not really get out as much as they used to. So the folks at Source Digital are capitalizing on the context of what's happening now and really allowing brands and retailers to bridge those connections with their consumers when they're spending more time on their preferred devices. I had the chance to sit down with Laura and Hank Freecon, who are the co-founders of Source Digital and Brother and Sister, to really get into the nitty-gritty details of what inspired them to start the company, how it works, what product categories could possibly get the most value out of these experiences, and perhaps most importantly, how do you even measure the success of this type of experience? So listen in. I hope that this conversation is enlightening for you as you try to understand what exactly contextual commerce is, how it's going to evolve in the future, and maybe find a new channel to engage with your customers. Laura, Hank, thank you both so much for taking the time to uh, join me today. Really excited to chat with you. No, thank you. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for having us. Let's start with the obvious. You co-founded Source Digital together. It's not often that we see a family-driven organization in the tech world. So what inspired you both to make this move together? Well, I'll start with this answer. I am a costume designer. I work in film and television. and I have constantly been getting requests for, um, you know, who's, who, what did Sookie wear in episode four, season seven, or I'm a collector and I would do anything to have Sylvester Stallone's boxer shorts from Grudge Match. How can I get them? You know, so the ball started rolling from there. And one night I had this light bulb moment after working on set all day. And I thought, wow, there's no place where people can get the information that I have at my fingertips from any aspect of production. So I reached out to Hank. He had just sold a tech company and I said, Hey, what do you think about this? And Hank, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. I I thought it was interesting at first, but I having just sold a company. I was a little busy to deal with the impact of that. And I said, well, it seems complicated how we do it because I come from a background that deals with use of metadata. So we'll use that term, you know, this isn't a tech show, but any information that is a subset of the video or a subset of the medium, like the, um, for example, the, the radio show in this case, who Laura and I are, is known as metadata. And there's a lot of standards that define how to carry that information. And to my head goes from an engineering perspective, well, how would we even extend this information and it's so dynamic? 
And then it hit me, we would have to really almost take a picture of the information at its origination point and then, you know, house that in the cloud and then allow that information to be consumed downstream. So I had thought a little bit about the way to do that. And then I linked up with another gentleman named Michael Phillips, one of the inventors of a popular video editing tool called Avid Media Composer, and he's won a few Academy Awards. And he had thought about this too. So we all got together with some other friends in the industry, technically driven as well as entertainment driven, and started to build the uh, initial platform. And I think that's the start of that journey. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting to see the entertainment and tech world start to come together more and more, not just in source digital's case, I think broadly speaking, it's just an interesting trend that we're seeing come to fruition over the past few years. But I do want to dig a little bit deeper into the challenges or I guess essentially goals of source digital. I guess looking at it through two lenses, the consumer perspective and then the brand and retailer perspective since our audience is of course, retail executives. So what were you guys trying to accomplish at a high level? I mean, obviously, Lori, you, you spoke about that, making that connection between the consumer or the viewer and the character. I love so-and-so style. Like, I want to have this outfit, right? Being able to bridge that gap. But what else from a benefit standpoint were, were you guys really hoping to provide? Well, Source started as this idea with clothing just because that's my field of expertise. But there are props, there are locations, there is music. With Source technology, we could get anything accessible to the consumer. So let's say you're a retailer and you have a new wine that you want to promote and the viewer is watching an episode of Sex and the City and I want all things Carrie Bradshaw. Well, I would love to know what wine she's drinking or what restaurant they're in and how I can book that restaurant that night by clicking on a link or what have you. So it's so much more. It's basically any aspect of what you're watching in a show. I would add to that that I think one of the things that's also important, it's not like you suddenly go for the literal objects always or that there is a literal tie, right? So like Laura, for example, when you guys were working on Mad Men, right? you didn't have a retailer in mind. You were dealing period pieces, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that red skinny tie is not being sold by Banana Republic at that time. Banana Republic doesn't even know that's going to be a trend in the early days of that show, right? (laughs) So I always joke, I'm like, I wonder how many fashion designers pegged the comeback of the skinny tie that they got credit for that when it was really Mad Men. But that's essentially a show or an example of culture. So our job at Source was to think, well, We've got to figure out how to realign this data when the trend comes online. So if then Mad Men starts to have a Banana Republic relationship later in life, which I think did happen, how do we recognize that and redirect that relationship that was originally there as a period piece, hand design, now coming to life by a retailer? Then there is the inverse side of that, which is the retailer does have a relationship with the show or with the unit and they're looking to exploit that relationship or get their brand heard. So we want to work in that way. And and then there's just general use of video for marketing of carrying that message. And you have a lot of different dynamics that go down there. So I think to Laura's point, it's contextual, it's relational driven, it's inspiring driven, even the cologne, like the script says, 
John leans into Susie and says, you smell nice today, Susie, you know, well, okay, what is that perfume? It's not literal. It's a contextual relationship to the storyline. So thinking these things through was a lot of our trick on inventing the technology at source as to how to make it dynamic and evergreen or ever changing. Oh, that's fascinating. So I'd like to dig into that a little bit more, if you don't mind, because I'm finding it interesting that there were kind of layers to this from from a benefit standpoint, right? Like this could be something that the film or TV creators can use to drive engagement for their show. It could be, to your point, Hank, it could be a way to promote a partnership that a well-known media outlet or show has with a brand, or it could be a way for a brand to be proactive and get in front of a target audience in a contextual way. Like there are layers to this, which is is interesting. So let's break down how that works from a technology perspective perspective, like for all of the brand and marketing folks listening. I mean, you've kind of walked through the data requirements a little bit, but let's break down what does it take to enable this experience and what ultimately do the customers see? Like, does it show up in the form of a pop-up? Is it like a panel type experience? Like, I'd love to kind of understand that a little bit more. Sure. Laura, you want me to take that one? So basically, there's a I think there's a fourth element. I think you named three, maybe more, maybe it's a fourth or a fifth. There's an element of this that's also not instantaneous, right? So as every good marketer knows, it's great if you can capture someone in the moment and get them to take an action, but you sometimes have to think about how do you linger in that buyer's brain over time. And what I found fascinating was when Laura, you had pointed out, I think it was an, was it an oncologist that reached out to you guys on the show of True Blood? Yeah, it was an oncologist who wanted to buy something for her patient because she knew the patient was a huge fan of the show. Right. So I think about that, right? There's a sharing aspect. Like if you could go into the layers and grab that information in, in a moment, right? It may not be for you to take action on. It might be for you to share with somebody or to gift somebody or to will to somebody, right? In the sense that the way that you want to think about your relationship to that. So to give you kind of that idea of these relationships, we have to layer this information in a way that doesn't make it tightly bound to the video. So from a tech standpoint, we have to think on two levels. We've got to think, okay, how do we allow the information to persist synthetically, right? Because geographically, there are different conditions. Gender has different conditions associated with it. Some winning goal in a sports game, right? may inspire two different types of buying behaviors. Maybe there's a mom that wants a baby onesie, and maybe there's a guy who just wants that male jersey, right? But you're looking for low friction relationships. You're not in that typical browse cataloging state, right? It's something that's inspiring, it's contextual, it's relevant. So we have to make that information dynamic. And so at Source, we built that into a cloud architecture, and then we have seven patents now, more coming, that use a relational layer of the information, what we call metadata, the way that you actually want to engage with that information or the conditions with the end user that make it a lower friction result and the actions you assign to that. And then we have to think about this other type of world, which is the devices. And this is, again, where our intellectual property intersects is we're not in a world where we have just TV or we just have a movie. In fact, Most video watching, I think the latest trends 
for Gen X and, and millennial and Gen Z is 57 to 60% of their video consumption is on a mobile device now. So you start to think about that high touch relationship. But then there's this other thing coming out of the corner, which is called natural language relationships. We're using them more and more, which is, hey, we demoed at CES a few years ago. Hey, Alexa, ask Source what Andrew Lincoln is wearing right now. Oh, he's wearing lucky blue denim jeans. Would you like me to add them to your cart, right? So this voice relationship is starting to become prevalent. So at Source, we have built for all these different dynamics, multi-device relationships, in-device relationships, because that contextual nature of this intersection of this information, getting it in the hands of the right consumer at the right time, letting them have a agility about it that lets them share it with others and what device are they on are all the things we had to worry about in building this platform. That's excellent. So throughout our conversation so far, you both have hit on a few different examples of the products or items that may best resonate through this type of experience. Blue jeans, perfume, even furniture. So it seems like there's really no boundaries in terms of like preferred categories or ideal categories for this type of experience. But I mean, are there any considerations for the folks listening right now that maybe think like, wow, this is really cool, but like, how do I determine whether this is right for my business? Or do you think that this is just like a pretty significant opportunity for any type of brand? It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, my perspective on it is the use of video. I think it's by 2021, which is next year already. And this is a pre-COVID number. It's 82% of the internet's traffic. Analysts are forecasting that by 2028, it will be 90% of 5G traffic. Laura and I have a family business that we're affiliated with through our family called Freycon Farms and Freycon Orchards and Freycon Farms. And we see this there. Like if we send words out on social, they travel a little bit. If we send pictures out, they travel a little bit further. When we send a video out, it travels even further. The problem with video as a mechanism, if you think about it, it's a pre-internet technology. So That means that everything else from a retailer or an advertiser's point of view that is powerful about the internet is devoid from this medium. Even though it is one of the most effective mediums to get the message out, it's missing a fundamental thing. And without putting anybody in a spot, that fundamental thing is that every other medium, whether you're Googling for information as a user, whether you're on Facebook liking or favoriting something, whether you're in Amazon buying something, There is a real-time relationship between your request as a user or the information you're intersecting with, like when you're looking up information on Google, and that advertiser's understanding of you as a consumer and your behavior, right? Video, the best it can do is tell you that someone watched the video. So for anybody in any industry that is looking to interface with consumer trends, I mean, we get pushed by the market to embrace things that I didn't think about. Like Laura and I looked at this in the beginning with others and focused on entertainment-driven content. Well, it's obvious in hindsight, but we're working with brands on construction videos. And I have a lot of friends that are in construction. They're constantly going to videos and they are trying to figure out tips and tricks to spackle a wall, to flash a roof. They've got some complexity they're using. Well, that's a great opportunity for brands to kind of intersect there and say, hey, while you're doing that, spare yourself seven trips to the hardware on store on Saturday. <laughs> you know, here, how about these tools, right? Because you're obviously in a project state. 
or automotive, right? When we think about the automotive industry, it's not like you just immediately think, oh, I'm going to sell a car through the video. But what is happening is that 90% of the buyer's brain, when they are actually researching that car, is done on the internet, right? To make that decision. So before they walk into the dealer, 90% of people know what they're going for before they get and encounter the dealership. And they got that information from places like Motor Trend, from other automotive influencers. Some only might be Motor Trend because they're a nice customer of ours to give them props. But imagine something like Source. We're bringing the entire dealership through another company we have an affiliation with called Powerband, which handles not just the selling of the car, but also the ability to qualify for users for financing, right? Or to trade Trading Co. or any of these companies, right? That are trying to get those consumer relationships established for retailing in that industry. So I really think that we're encountering a world where video is such a great medium. It's already been embraced. We're not inventing something new. Already users look at video and take action on places like Google or Amazon. The new thing is letting it happen as a relationship to the content creator, the content owner, the audience partner who's hosting that video, or even the brand who's pushing the video directly and letting them measure that impact on the fly, the data relationship of consumerism that is so coveted. We now understand that within any moment in video. Yeah, no, that's excellent. And I definitely do want to get into the measurement side of things a little bit later. But I do want to go back to just your overall point around the impact and influence of video, the fact that people are relying more on their mobile phones and frankly are spending more time watching TV, you know, binging content, just given the context of how the world is today, right? People are spending more time at home. They're finding ways to stay entertained and stay engaged. So I'm curious, you know, what kind of conversations are you having now with brands and retailers? Are you seeing an uptick in excitement around this contextual commerce opportunity, especially given the mindset of the consumer and frankly, the location of the consumer right now? Well, we have a joke. We have the pre-COVID source and now we have the post-COVID source because since COVID happened, it's blossomed exponentially of the things that we can do and the people who are interested and the brands that are interested. And yeah, it's definitely a different time. And it's as hard as it has been in the world, it's been a good time for Source, (laughs) to be honest. And then Hank, you can explain why a little bit more. Yeah. And I think pre-COVID, we were already resonating with respect to the buyer's brain and that intersection. But like you said, more and more the binge watching, the relationships to video that are being established. I mean, we're even having conversations in the faith-based lane relative to their needs, right? In terms of consumer relationships. And we're doing more with Live. We just signed a deal with LiveX Live, which is another shout out to a partner who is doing a lot of amazing things with live entertainment. And we're really excited about bringing artists merch to the forefront in video, right? Getting brands the activation that they used to do in a physical environment, now in a video environment. So not sure if I'm exactly answering your question, but I would just state that uh, the trends we're seeing are seem to be exponentially growing right in front of our eyes. And I think that the relationship to that brands are trying to have, I guess the biggest point I would say is that there is a sort of a cookie monster apocalypse about to hit. And I think by 2022, if it's still happening, last I read, Google was going to expire the cookie. And so a lot of brands depend on that for targeting 
they're anonymous users, right? And the laws are going to get stricter about that. So I think if I'm a brand right now, and I used to work my way through dealerships, through more complex buying cycles, or if I'm a dealer who's in the middle of that, I really need to think about knowing my customer and giving them something of value that makes them want to be known. Because right now, user data, the first party user re relationships over the next couple of years are going to get a really big uh, spotlight shown on them. And that should be front and center to any retailer's objective is knowing your customer. Yeah. So a follow-up question there then. I'm glad you brought up the targeting implications and this whole notion of personalization, right? Because we, we've been hearing the phrase contextual commerce for a while. I think it's largely through that lens of personalization and that's constantly evolving as a space in and of itself. But I have to ask you, you know, since you're both living and breathing this every day, you're having conversations and seeing real life rollout of these types of experiences. I'm curious if you think contextual commerce as a term or a trend is on the cusp of evolving. And I guess really the foundational question is, what does it mean to you if you were to define it for the marketers out there? What does it really mean? Well, I can give you my views and Laura, you can expand if you want. The nature of contextualization to any kind of commerce relationship is as old as commerce itself, right? It's not a new relationship we do it in the bakery, right, at our retail store. We make sure that the quaffing aromas from the fresh bread are, are there and relevant in front of you at the time in the morning that you're coming in to buy so that we contextually grab you, <laughs> you know, at that moment, right? I think in the digital landscape is where it's new, right? Because traditionally, e-commerce has been a lot like a Costco journey. And I don't mean to knock that. I mean, you, but it is this sort of I, I always joke, like when I go, I'm into outdoors and outdoor sports. So when I go to, if I go to cabelas.com, I'm going to pretty much go in and out with the things that I intend. When I go to Cabela's, I don't know how it happens, but sometimes every time I go to that store, I walk out $600 less in my wallet, right? And it's because there's so much contextualization there. And I think video gives us that opportunity. So for us at Source, when we think of it, we think about an intersection of two worlds. There's an intersection with the content, and this isn't related just to video. That's just what we do well. But you can tie it to words. You can tie it to images, to conversations, right? But it's that contextualization to you personally being paying attention to something that's organic or of a relationship in your life. And then there's the relationship of time in your life. Like, where are you at present time? Like, are you an expected mother? And so the contextualization is that baby onesies might be really important to you right now when a sporting arena goal happens, right? Or is it, you know, looking for a new car? And so that means that because of that relationship, you want to look at financing options versus maybe it's nothing to do with the car. You already bought the new car and you're watching that because you're really interested in some aftermarket capabilities from that video. So there's all kinds of relationships of intersection. So when we think of contextual relationships, we think of those intersections of content and moments in life, right? And that's why we call them source-activated moments. SAMs is our product unit of measure. And then we think about how to apply them without friction, right? And apply them of value so they're not annoying. Like, don't, don't remind me about the shoes that I found on my own for my mom who was going hiking with my aunt to keep buying a pair of shoes when I'm not the woman. So I don't need woman's shoes. It was for my mom. And number one, I found them on my own and you keep telling me about them. That's just annoying. 
you know? <laughs> so, so I think that's where we have to drift into. For me, I feel that right now, the human connection is so important because we're not getting it on the day-to-day as we used to do. And being able to have this human connection to your video technology when you're watching something and something actually speaks to you and you can have the ability to share with your friends. So for instance, going back to Live X Live, I am a huge fan of music festivals. Music is like one of my loves of my life. And the fact that I can't go and enjoy festivals right now with my friends, bringing the human connection where we can watch it together and discover these musicians, discover the merchandise, share ideas. It makes you have this connection that you used to be able to get in person and you're not able to get right now because we can't gather together. We can't be together. That to me is something that's very important in these times today. I just think the human connection, bringing a human connection to video is really important. Yeah. And we've definitely seen so much innovation, so many brands and and media companies, whether it's regular media or social media, really trying to find ways to bridge those gaps and make people feel a bit more connected and maintain those relationships, which to your point, Laura, is going to be more more important than ever, I think. I do want to dig a little bit deeper into the measurement side of things. Hank, you brought up SAM is a key measurement for source digital because like I noted earlier, we have a lot of marketers in our audience, a lot of folks that are trying to best assess their current media mix, their marketing mix, and also may be held more accountable for their spending and, you know, more scrutinized for the performance of their campaign. So what does measurement look like for Source Digital? How do you measure, I guess, the actual impact? I mean, are there layers to it? Like, is there an engagement impact versus an actual conversion impact? Would love to hear how you guys tackle this because measurement always gets a little murky for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the old adage, right? I know 50% of my marketing spend is working. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't know which 50%. So the measurement, you're exactly right. Like as an industry, right? Performance based goals with marketing spend are more important than ever before, right? Not just because there was a trend already shifting that way, not just because Google and Facebook brought the notion or, and I don't give them total credit. I don't know if somebody else did it first, but I look at them as leaders that say, okay, CPEs, cost per engagement, measuring engagement as a cost factor, not cost per impression like we did in the traditional media days. I mean, that impression count that is measurement is as old as the newspaper, you know? the cost per action, right? And what is it worth to a brand for an action, right? And so those mediums are great because they were invented on the internet. I just Googled for information. Therefore, while I'm looking and getting those results back, I have upper fold advertisements or things or keywords that were there and and a brand or a retailer can measure engagement that way, right? Or Facebook, you know, I, I took action on something because an influencer, in my life recommended it or thought it was great for me to know or favorite or like it. So therefore there's a measurement there. So at source, right, we have to think about our views of measurement and it's very timely. Like we are having a lot of conversations right now because we've invented a new way of doing engagement. 
people have talked about, oh, I should be able to buy Jennifer Aniston's sweater, right? But that's like a fraction of the outcome, right? There's so much depth underneath that is like, what is it that sparks the trends of consumerism like we talked about earlier? So when we think of engagement, we're trying to look at what's the medium, right? Are we on the mobile phone? Are we on the laptop? Is it a hover on events, right? That was worth something to a brand. The ultimate is obviously the the engagement itself or the action itself, the CPA, that they bought something. But there's a lot of stuff that leads into that until you get to that ultimate event. And we have to look at that from a data analytics standpoint, because especially as we start to move down market, not everybody has the budget to say, I'm going to allocate three to 5% of my marketing spend to figure out what works by paying big, giant analysts and analytics companies. So they need that information in real time. And this is actually where machine learning is really great and going to be even better for brands and retailers because there's a term called A-B testing. And we're talking A to Z testing with micro events and micro trends and making adjustments on the fly within source. So now we're looking at right now, we have set up to engineer to handle 55,000 concurrent events of measurement in a 10 frames of video, right? Well, we've got to think about, okay, well, what, what do we do with that data? What is the important variables? What then drives that refinement to make that journey for the consumer even more frictionless, more subtle, more nuanced, right, to their life? And so those are the areas we're focusing on. So I think of measurement generically as, okay, did the human move to sweep an area of the video? When they did, did I offer them an action of that? Did they take action? Did they save it? Did they favorite it? Did they share it? Did they move it into a cart? Did they not check out of the cart? So there's a lot of the intersections of traditional measurement, but now just applying it to more nuanced measurement inside of video and that relationship to video. Got it. No, that's helpful. Because I know just as an industry, we've always been saying it's not just the isolated experience that the consumer has with a specific channel. It's the context of the actual brand experience. And, you know, if we're looking at it through the lens of the consumer, what they're thinking and feeling kind of going through these interactions that span across different channels and different tactics. So it's interesting to hear how video would kind of fit into this experience. But is there anything else that needs to be brought up? Again, looking at it as omni-channel strategy, right? And omni-channel marketing and, and measurement. Are there any nuances as far as how how this channel or or just contextual commerce in general integrates into this bigger brand marketing strategy that a lot of brands may be assessing and figuring out right now, right? We're getting into holiday season and 2021 planning. So is, is there anything else that we haven't discussed yet that you think is important to note? Well, there's something we're working on that I can't quite give too much insight to that I think is pretty exciting. But I will kind of tease you with this in that when you are applying something of value to your life, right, or hold, holding on to it, and I said this earlier, it's not that you're taking action immediately always, right? So the life cycle, for example, of when this is the best that trends can try to get to, or studies can try to get to before a technology like Source has arrived, is from the time you see something in the video, right, 
till the time you take action. So let's pick a location, right? So I saw a cool location in a video and I want to take action sometime. Well, I'm not going to go to that beach in Leonardo DiCaprio's movie, The Beach in Thailand immediately. I need to store that information in a way that then follows me relationally so that I can actually take action for on that for up to two years later, right? And so when we think about how to bring value to the consumer, we are looking at it in a world where we don't want to just force the consumer to have to deal with that thing right then or else they'll forget it, right? So we're looking at it from a consumer's perspective to say, hey, I, I really dig that thing right now. I need to hold on to that for a little bit and then have it be there for me to take action on later. And that's as much as I can give you on that. But I think that gives you a little general sense of direction of where we're going and what we see. But I guess it comes back to I as a consumer having a first party data relationship with my content, with my entertainment or my interests, right? And the ability to hold on to that knowledge that I just grabbed for a later date to take action on and the ability for retailers and brands to understand those actions that are happening much more downstream, much later on than when they first showed up in front of the consumer. Very interesting. So it's extending the lifespan of what a lot of tech companies call quote unquote moments, right? Like, how do you meet the moment? And like, if you see something on social media, I mean, I don't know about you, but I scroll really fast, right? <laughs> so if I yeah. see like a little blip of something, like <laughs> what stops me in my tracks, but also helps me recall it, right? Whenever I am ready to think back to that particular product or that brand. And I have to say, sometimes I'll, I'll say like, oh, like I saw something like this. I want to go back to it. And I don't know where I Remember. found yeah. it or how to find them. <laughs> so it's like, you're kind of creating that full circle moment whenever the consumer's ready, which I think is needed. Yeah, I like in this, you know, I just saw this cool river in a river runs through it. I'm going to hold on to that. When I'm ready, Airbnb and VRBO, please duke it out and give me a good spot. And then I'll be on my way. And Orvis, can you tell me what fly pattern to use? I don't want to think a lot about it. Just intersect with the timing and the trends of that seasonality, right? And that moment and that content location. And so that's how we start thinking long range about that relationship with consumers and brands. Be a utility, be a public good. Very interesting. No, this has been fantastic. Laura Hank, thank you again for taking the time out to share a little bit about Source, source Digital, contextual commerce, and, and some of the layers that definitely go into this area of the commerce space. It's truly fascinating. Before I let you both go, I do want to ask you both to answer my final question, and that's really around the future of and how brands and retailers can prepare, right? Like I kind of noted earlier, we're getting into holiday season 2021. What can brands and retailers do to best prepare for where contextual commerce is going and figure out how they can best embrace it? Hank, do you want me to start with you? Sure. I can give you my views. I kind of hit it on the last statement, but it's be a public good, right? Be a value, be a utility, right? I look at a lot from a tech perspective because that's my job. Apps are on the decline in the sense that like the way that growth is rolling out in the internet, it's cumbersome, it's friction, right? To download the app, to have to use the app. So the only time you really want to lock into an app is when it becomes a utility, right? So think about your brand that way, right? Think about your relationship with the consumer that way. Find the context of intersection in their life 
that is of value at the right time and intersect there, just telling them you exist in such a noisy world we live in right now. I think of that scene in, in Minority Report when Tom Cruise was walking and it's like constantly trying to grab his attention, you know, like, hey, Tom, you know, or whatever the character's name was. But the reality of this is this shouldn't be obvious to the consumer. This should be subtle. This should be not annoying. This should be of value. And so when you think about how you embrace technology, I think you should think about that model in how you use technology to reach the consumer, especially in contextual commerce and obviously sources here to to help you out so give us a call so <laughs> there you go yeah. subtle <laughs> laura how about you <laughs> i would say that keep an open mind this is for the brands keep an open mind about your advertising it doesn't have to be in your face normally when you turn on your tv especially at holiday season there's some Christmas theme music, a big red bow on something. You know, it's just so in your face. Brands need to now start thinking about a more subtle approach and that integration into the video. It may not be that, wow, we're in their face when they're watching something. And it's going to be, like Hank said, more subtle, more of a personal connection. And I think if brands are willing to embrace that and keep an open mind to a new way of advertising, they're going to really enjoy the source experience. I love that. And I have to say, it has been truly fascinating to hear how, Laura, your experience in the entertainment world has really led to this pretty significant domino effect impacting how people experience brands, how people experience commerce, and ultimately how brands and retailers can better connect with them. So thank you again to both of you for for taking the time out, for being so transparent and really just walking through this trend with me. It's an exciting time in light of all of the negative things happening in light of all of the uncertainty. It's truly rewarding to speak with folks like you who are really helping drive the industry in a new direction. So thank you again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And as always, to our listeners out there, thank you for checking out this episode of Retail Remix. If you have any feedback for us or follow-up questions for our guests today, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at rtouchpoints. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You'll be alerted when new episodes are available. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.